Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world without mirrors? Mirrors, right? You know, mirrors are actually one of the oldest human inventions. They were invented sometime between fire and the wheel, right? Somewhere in between there, after we learned how to keep ourselves warm and cook food, we thought, before we do anything else, we really need to figure out a way to look at ourselves a lot, right? So once, you know, people figured out how to do that. So the first apartment I ever had after I moved out on my own, I lived in Debrecen, Hungary, in Eastern Hungary on the border with Romania. I was 18 years old and I had a roommate, his name was Pishti, and our rent was $150 a month and for that we got 200 square, or 250 square feet. And uh, when we first moved in, I mean, we literally owned nothing. So uh, such a small space didn't feel that small. I mean, we didn't even have like beds or, you know, uh, it didn't feel very cramped. Neither of us owned anything. I had moved to Hungary with a medium-sized backpack with some clothes in it. And Pishti really only owned like the clothes on his back and a Bible. And so we, we were basically one step above being homeless. I mean, we were that close to being homeless. So... When, when we first moved in, it was January, and we didn't own anything, including a refrigerator. And so at least it was nice that for a while we were able to store our food outside. Uh, I remember trying to make tea once. Someone had given us two cups, you know, one for him and one for me. And, uh, but we didn't have anything to boil water in. So we just like turned on the sink, right, like the faucet, like as, as hot as we could, uh, and tried to make tea like that that didn't work very well. Uh, we also didn't own a shower curtain, so whenever anybody would take a shower, I mean, it was just water everywhere, right? And, uh, and we owned a total of two towels, one for him, one for me, and we didn't own a washing machine. So you can imagine things were not uh, great. But the other thing we didn't own in our apartment was a mirror, right? Now, you never actually realize how much you use a mirror until you don't have a mirror. So we had this apartment and we we didn't have a mirror so what do you do when you don't have a mirror well we would just ask each other hey do I look okay <laughs> you know uh, could you uh, help me do my hair do I have anything in my teeth please just help me out right and that worked for a little while but eventually we decided to splurge we uh, we said you know what we're just gonna go for it we splurge and we bought this handheld mirror at the store you know like one of those ones that you you hold in your hand, I guess that's why it's called a handheld mirror. And uh, so we hung it from a string, like upside down, you know, from that little hole that's in it. And that was our mirror. And it was like, wow, so that's what I look like, right? You know, without a mirror, here's the thing. It's easy to be deceived about how we really look. You might feel like you look awesome, but in reality, you're a mess. But without a mirror, it's hard to tell. It's easy to be deceived about the way that you really look. The Bible tells us in the, in the book of James that this is actually one of the functions of God's word. It's like a mirror which helps us to see ourselves as we really are. Because we can easily be deceived about ourselves. We can easily have an incorrect view of ourselves. But what God's word does is it functions like a mirror which helps us to see ourselves for how we really are. Now here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we pick up the, the story of the life of David in a place where David has not looked in the mirror lately. And he really needs to. Because you see, David is deceived about himself. He's deceived about his actions. But God is going to give him a mirror in this section. And he's going to show him what he really looks like. He's going to help him see himself accurately. 
And David's not going to like what he sees. But I have to tell you this, seeing himself clearly, seeing himself as God sees him, is a necessary first step for David and, might I say, for you and I in receiving the grace of God in our lives. We must first deal with the reality of our situation. We must see ourselves clearly in order that we might then receive the grace of God. So the title of today's message is Looking in the Mirror. That's the title for today. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, again, we pick up the story in the life of David. And, uh, you know, we left off in chapter 11. Here in chapter 12, we're looking at a place which is, this is happening about one year later. One year after those disheartening events of chapter 11, where we saw David, who at one time in his life had been called a man after God's own heart, who at one time in his life had been such a great man of God and had done great things and had so much hope and purpose. But we saw David go down this long, slow road of entertaining temptation and making bad decisions and eventually committing adultery and then even committing murder to cover up his adultery. You know, all of us have that instinct within us. Do you know that? We all, as humans, that's our instinct to want to cover up our sin. And don't you see that many times, like David, we're so much more afraid of being found out by other people than we are of being found guilty before God. But David, he got away with murder. That's where we left off last week. David got away with murder, literally. He got away with adultery. Not only did he get away with it, but he played it so well that he came out of it looking like a hero in the eyes of most of the people. But of course, God knew the truth about what David had done. And, and of course, David knew the truth about what he had done. And we know from the Psalms, which David wrote, they were like, you know, it's like his journal where he writes out the thoughts of his heart. And David wrote after he did these things, he writes about how his conscience was bothering him, how he was tormented inside because he knew what he had done. And because of it, just all the joy and all the vitality was sapped out of his life. But now we pick up here in chapter 12 and a year has passed. A year has gone by. And you know, a year is really plenty of time to get used to living with a guilty conscience, isn't it? A year. You can get used to living with a guilty conscience in a year to the point where it doesn't bother you anymore, to the point where it doesn't sting as much. Mark Twain said this. He said, a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. But even though David had hardened his heart, God hasn't given up on David. And I'll tell you what, there's so much hope in that sentence that even though David has given up on God, has hardened his heart, God has not given up on David and God will not give up on David. And, and here's how we see that. We begin in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, we first met Nathan the prophet back in chapter 7. And the role of the prophet in those days was that they were like the pastor for the people. You see, the priests, their job was to make the sacrifices and do all the stuff in the temple, in the tabernacle. But the prophets, they were like the pastors for the people. And so we know that uh, David greatly respected Nathan because he knew that Nathan was a straight shooter. He was a man who was godly and who would always give it to David straight. And so David looked up to him and he listened to him. This was his pastor. And so here's what David's pastor says when he comes to him. Nathan came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. 
And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan comes to David and he says, look, David, I've got a story. I've got a something that I need you to consider. You know, he presents it to him as if it's a court case that needs his opinion and his consideration. Now, in those days, it was not uncommon for people to keep lambs as family pets. My wife, her mom, grew up in Peru. So that's my mother-in-law. She grew up in Lima, Peru. And in their place in Lima, I heard the story, you know, that they had a pet goat. And when it was small, they would let this, you know, pet goat come and and play in their house, you know, sometimes, just like you would with any other pet. And my mother-in-law tells a story that one night uh, she was like, you know, a small child and she broke the rules, right? Because the rule was the goat cannot sleep in the house. Now we all know why a goat shouldn't sleep in the house, but she was a small child. So she got out in the middle of the night, went and let the goat in and brought the goat into her bedroom and shut the door. Well, when she woke up in the morning, she realized why it's not a good idea to have a goat in your bedroom because the goat had eaten all of her hair, right? So, uh, but in Israel, it was uh, not uncommon for people to keep lambs as pets, just like we keep cats and dogs. So Nathan tells David this story about this poor man who had this pet lamb as the family pet. And the kids, he says, the kids are super attached to it. You know, it's probably, it's named Fido or Fluffy or something, right? But then this rich guy comes along who has plenty of sheep of his own and he steals this man's one lamb, his pet lamb. His kids are attached to this lamb and he kills it and then he feeds it to his guests. Think how horrified you would be if this happened to you. Let me just put this in some modern terms for you. This would be like if somebody from the wealthier part of town, like, you know, pulled up in front of your house, went into your backyard took your golden retriever, took him in his car, went home, and turned your golden retriever into chicken wings for his Super Bowl party just because he didn't feel like going to King Supers and spending the money, right? That would be the equivalent of this. You would be horrified. Verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David hears this story and he's completely incensed, right? He's just filled with this sense of righteous indignation. He's angry that this man would do this to this other man. How could he? And David pronounces a sentence. He says, this man should not only make restitution, right, fourfold. That means give the man four lambs for the one that he stole. Not only should he make restitution, but he says, as the Lord lives, this man should be put to death. You see, he says, as the Lord lives. Now, that's very strong language. You've got to understand, in English, that is the exact equivalent of saying, I swear to God. It's very, very strong what he's saying here. Now, think about this. A death sentence for what? For stealing a lamb? For sheep stealing? Isn't that a little bit excessive? Don't you think? I mean, here's what's interesting. Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. You guys with quick thumbs, thumb over there with me. Exodus 22, verse 1. It says this. 
If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the exact thing that David just said that that guy should do? Except he added to it that he should also be killed, right? So here's what's interesting. This tells us that David knew exactly what the law of Moses required for this crime. Even though David was living in sin, even though he's estranged from God because he's holding on to this unconfessed sin in his life, yet he still knows the word of God backwards and forwards. He knew exactly what the word of God said. He even knew these super obscure references like laws about people who steal other people's sheep. And you know what that tells us? It tells us beyond the shadow of a doubt that David absolutely knew what God's word said about what he had done. Do you realize that? If he knew what it said about how to take care of people who steal sheep, do you think that David knew what it said about people who commit adultery? I'm guessing he did. And you know what the punishment for that is? Death. And you know what the punishment for murder is? Death. David knew that. David had murdered a man. And guess what the punishment was? It was death. David knew it. He knew what his crime was. He even knew what the word of God had to say about that. But he just says, you know what? I think this man needs to die for what he did. For what was really just a minor theft, you know? Now, isn't it kind of weird that David is this upset about it? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit inordinate, right? Like he's blowing this out of proportion. Why was David so upset about this crime? Here's why. Because David was struggling with his own conscience. He's struggling with sin in his own life. And it, you know what that did to him? It caused him to judge other people more harshly. You know, here's the, here's the deal. My sin always looks a lot worse when I see it on somebody else. Did you know that? Did you know this same is true of you? Your sin always looks a lot uglier when you see it on somebody else. And that's what's going on here with David. He made a lot of excuses, a lot of justifications for himself, but yet he's harsh and very judgmental towards others. When he sees somebody sin in the same way that he sinned, he's disgusted, he's angered, he's incensed, he's beside himself, and he, he just orders this harsh judgment. You know, we all have a tendency to be harshest towards those who struggle in the same ways that we do. Do you realize that? You know what? If you want to see the mirror, right? That's the title, looking in the mirror. If you want to get some insight into your own heart, if you want to see yourself more clearly, you want to see yourself in the mirror, think about this. What are the things which you hate about other people? I know that's strong language, but what are the things which you get inordinately upset about in other people? Let me tell you what, that gives you some insight into where you're at in your own heart. Perhaps there's an issue with that. Probably there is in your own heart. And that's why you get inordinately upset about that thing. Because like David, here's the thing. We all try to make our guilty consciences feel better by passing judgment on other people. It's kind of a defense mechanism. We try to make ourselves feel better by passing judgment on other people. You see, when you encounter highly critical, highly judgmental people, it's not uncommon to find that they're trying to hide or cover up something in themselves. But of course, the whole story here, this story that David had gotten so very upset about, 
it's just a big setup on Nathan's part. You probably realize that already. You see, Nathan has effectively gotten David to pronounce his own judgment. And he's condemned his own sin. And now Nathan's going to drop the bomb. Check it out in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that man, David. You see, it took David seeing his own sin on somebody else for him to understand the severity of that sin. It took David condemning that sin in another man to bring him to the place where he was ready to condemn sin in himself rather than just gloss over it. It took David pronouncing judgment on this other man, on his own sin in another person for him to recognize the judgment that he deserved before God. Before God. You know, by telling David this story, Nathan was helping David to look in the mirror and see himself. You know, I wonder what would happen if you and I could have this same kind of experience. If we could really step outside of ourselves and see ourselves from the outside. What would we think? What judgments would we pass? What would we say, that needs to change? What, what advice would we want to give ourselves, you know? If you could step outside yourself and see yourself at midnight walking into the kitchen and opening that bag of potato chips and just plowing through the whole thing, right? What would, you would be like, no, don't do that. Eat an apple, eat a carrot, eat some hummus or something. Just don't do that. Drink some water, go to bed, you know? We'd see ourselves browsing the internet and searching for things that we have no place looking into. And we'd say, don't do it, don't do it. We'd look at ourselves talking to the, about that other person in such a negative way and we'd say, oh my gosh, don't you see that you could just as much be talking about yourself. You do all those exact same things. You know, it's hard to see ourselves. It's hard to see our actions clearly. But it is so important that we do so. And that is one of the functions of Scripture. It's a mirror that shows us the truth about ourselves and the truth about our hearts. Like David, we can be easily deceived about what we really look like. And that's why we need a mirror. And God has given us that mirror in his word. But I'll tell you what, there's another way that God gives us that mirror. And we see that here in this text. And that is in the role of community. This is one of the most important roles of community. We really believe in community here at Whitefields. It's not just something that's in our name. We believe it's a major part of our identity and who we strive to be as a church. As Christians, you see, we need people around us who can know us and speak into our lives and say, brother, sister, I see something in you, in your life. I'm not sure that you see yourself, but I see it and I want to tell you about it because I love you. And maybe it'll be a gifting that you had that somebody else sees, although you didn't, although you didn't recognize it. Maybe it's an attitude, a tendency, something you don't easily recognize in yourself and you need somebody from the outside to reveal it to you and just tell you about it. You see, we all desperately need to look in the mirror because seeing ourselves clearly, seeing ourselves as God sees us is the necessary first step towards experiencing the grace of God. You see, David had to first condemn sin in himself before he could receive forgiveness. The first step in receiving God's grace is to see yourself as you really are, to get to the place where you condemn sin in yourself, where you stop making excuses and you stop trying to minimize and you stop trying to deflect and you just own it. You know, the flip side of that is also true. 
once you have received the grace of God, you need that mirror to show you your true identity, who you have become in Christ, your new identity in Christ, that you're forgiven, redeemed, a beloved child of the King, one who's justified, one who is righteous, one who has been endowed with gifts for God's kingdom and for his glory. You see, on both sides of the coin, there are times when we don't see ourselves clearly. We don't feel things accurately, and we can be deceived. And that's why we so desperately need to look in the mirror. And we get that mirror we see here in 2 Samuel 12 through the Word of God and through fellowship and community with other people who are pursuing God. So from verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it, this were all too little, I would add to you as much more. He says, you are that rich man, David. God has blessed you so much. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. See, David was so incensed about this rich man who would steal this poor man's sheep. The truth was David had done far worse, right? I mean, he didn't steal someone's lamb. He stole a man's wife. He didn't kill a sheep. He killed another man, another woman's husband. She, he killed someone's child. You see, if the rich man in the story deserved to die, well, then how much more so did David? Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, here's an interesting thing. Notice that in verse 9, it says that David despised the commandment of the Lord by what he did. And then in verse 10, speaking about the same thing, it says that David despised God himself by what he did. And what that tells you is this, that God takes his word pretty personally. That if you despise the word of God, that's equivalent to despising God himself. And the way to honor God is to honor his word and live according to it. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Even though David is going to turn back to the Lord in his heart in just a minute here, the latter part of David's life is going to be characterized by these kinds of things. Very difficult things, terrible things, uh, sad things. And most of it's going to come upon him from within his own household, from his own sons, and from people who he thought were his friends. You see, David is going to reap the bitter fruit of what he has sown, and he's going to reap it with interest. But here's the thing, David is going to go through some very hard things, and God is going to allow these things to happen to David. And the promise that God is going to make him is this, if you, re if you repent, if you turn back to me, it's not going to stop all these bad things from happening to you. Think about that. He's making this promise, and he says, David, repent, turn back to me. But the promise is not, if you do that, then these bad things won't happen. No, these things are going to happen no matter what. They're going to happen whether David turns back to the Lord or whether David doesn't turn back to the Lord. 
The promise is, David, if you will repent and turn back to me, you can be forgiven. You can be restored to fellowship with God. And life and joy and vitality will return to your life because the burden of guilt and shame will be taken away and you'll be restored to fellowship with God. And David might say, well, okay, but will I still have to go through all that bad stuff? Yeah. Yeah, you will, David. See, those are natural consequences of, of what you've done, David. And, and God is not promising to save you from those things. Isn't that interesting? But here's what God is promising. He's promising to restore David to a right relationship with him. And then David will be able to walk through those difficult things, those hard times, with God by his side, hand in hand with the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. You see, he's not promising to improve David's circumstances if he repents. He's not promising to take away the difficulties from his life. Now think about this contrast. For the last year, David has been living apart from God, and his outward circumstances have been pretty great, haven't they? I mean, here he is living in a palace. People think he's a hero. He's rich. He's got all the women he wants, right? And he's the king. But from here on out, David is going to get right with God, but yet the circumstances of his life are going to get a lot worse. Some people would say, I didn't think that's how it's supposed to work, right? Now let me ask you this. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer to have good circumstances apart from God, or would you prefer to have difficult circumstances with God? And you're like, I choose C, none of the above, right? But uh, you see, the promise of the gospel is not a promise primarily to improve your circumstances. I want you to know that. It's a promise to give you hope and strength in God, which is greater than any circumstance you could ever face and goes beyond the circumstances of this life. Now, let me, let me remind you of another time in David's life. Uh, a long time ago, back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where we found David, he's on the run for his life, and he goes and he finds refuge in a cave, the cave of Adullam. And at that point, he's homeless and he's alone. I mean, how much worse does it actually get? I thought I had it bad not owning a mirror in my small apartment in Hungary. David lives in a cave, homeless, alone. Now we read in the Psalms that when David wrote that during that time, David, when he arrived at that cave, he felt that this was truly the lowest point of his life. But then something happened. What happened was that God met David in that cave, and God used that time in the cave to teach David that he is our sufficiency. And if David were to have nothing else in this world except for the Lord, it would be enough. And for David, you know, contrary to all expectations, that cave of Adullam, it ended up being one of the best times in his life. The high watermark for David as far as happiness and contentment and being in a good relationship with God. That was the high point. Now contrast that with this. David's no longer living in a cave. Now he's living in a palace. But this time in the palace has turned out to be the true low point in David's life when he's farthest from God and the most unhappy. Do you see what this is showing us? The point is this. With God, a cave can be heavenly, and with God, or without God, a palace can be hellish. You see, the promise of the gospel is the promise of hope which goes beyond your circumstances. I ran across this on Twitter the other day. I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen. It's Timothy Keller said this. 
yeah, there you go. It's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Isn't that incredible? Now, could it be possible, is it possible, that we tend to believe that there's nothing more important than our immediate circumstances, but God is calling us to hope and life and joy in Christ, which transcends all of those things? I would say absolutely yes. Verse 13, first part, it says this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I love the simplicity of David's confession. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel, we would often, we saw Saul and he would confess sometimes and he was like tears and there's mucus and he's slobbering all over and he's going on and on and on about how sorry he is and he's never going to ever, ever, ever do it again. I promise, you know, on, on a stack of Bibles and all that stuff. But David doesn't do that, does he? This is the sign of true contrition, by the way. He, he can't say more. He's pierced to the heart and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. In Hebrew, this is only three words long. Did you know that? And I believe that the simplicity of this reveals the true contrition of David's heart. He's cut to the heart. He's probably barely able to even speak. He's probably just so shocked when he sees himself in the mirror like that. And he's probably choking this out through being broken up. You see, the whole situation here, it had enabled David to look in the mirror and really see himself clearly in a way that he had not done in a long time. You see, he could see clearly his own sinfulness and guilt before God. And he could see clearly the grace and the forgiveness and the peace and the joy that God was offering to him and extending to him because God loved him so much. And seeing those two things clearly, do you know that we all need that? We all need to see those two things clearly. David saw his guilt and he saw God's love. And it brought David, those two things, his own guilt and God's amazing love for him, and it brought him to the point of repentance where he ran back into the open arms, the open waiting arms of his heavenly father. In Psalm 51, we read David's prayer of repentance. After this meeting with Nathan, it seems that David went back to doing something which he had not done in years at this point. He picked up pen and paper, and he began pouring his heart out to the Lord, and he began singing to the Lord again. And this psalm, this psalm of repentance, in it we see a broken man, but you know what we see more importantly? We see a hopeful man. Because you see, repentance opens the door to hope, right? And, and here's what we read in this psalm. I'll just read a few verses, but here's uh, from verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's beautiful, isn't it? You know why it's beautiful? Repentance is beautiful. Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, many princes sin like David but few repent like him. 
One of the most important aspects of having a heart for God is having a heart of repentance, a heart that turns back to the Lord time and time again, a heart that's humble before the Lord, a heart that's soft and teachable and receptive. This is what made David great. This is what made David a man after God's own heart. This is what set him apart. And that's a huge part of of really what made him a man after God's own heart, this humble heart of repentance. Back to 2 Samuel and picking it up in, in verse 13. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Meaning that he's not going to die for the murder that he committed. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fastened and, or fasted and went in and lay, on the, lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This child from this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the Lord decided to take him home. And even though David prayed and even though David fasted, God had determined to take this baby home to him, and he did not change his mind. And this is an interesting section. You know, some of you might know. Um, my wife and I, when our daughter was born, she was very sick and she spent a week in a coma and the doctors were telling us at some points not to even expect her to live at all. And, and if she did survive, they told us that she would be severely handicapped for the rest of her life. And so I spent the first few days of my daughter's life praying and fasting. I can relate to this, you know, I doing everything on my part that I possibly could to join in, in praying for her, fasting, asking others to pray for her. And by God's grace, he did heal her. And we're so thankful for that. But yet my wife and I, during that time, we talked about it. And you know what we determined while our daughter was still in that coma? We said, we're going to do everything we possibly can, medically and, and in prayer and in getting other people to pray. But ultimately, we are going to trust in God's sovereign choice. And while our daughter was in that coma, we decided whatever happens, we're going to accept it from the hand of the Lord as his best plan for our lives, for, his good, for our good, and for his glory. And by God's grace, like I said, she was healed. And it is one of those things where, you know, even the doctors were surprised and amazed. You know, it was wonderful. And we gave God so much glory for it. But you know what? Last year, one of my best friends, I officiated the wedding of his infant son. 
And you know what? We prayed and we fasted and we got everybody we knew to pray and fast just like we had for our daughter. But God decided to take his son home. Those are difficult things, aren't they? And there's comfort in knowing, though, like we see here in this verse, that David takes comfort in knowing that this baby is with the Lord, that there's no more suffering. Verse 23 of of 2 Samuel 12, it's been the source of so much comfort for people who have lost children or who have had miscarriages. Because in verse 23, David is saying that his baby is in heaven with the Lord and that one day they will be reunited. The indication, the implication here is that it seems that babies and children who die before reaching an age of personal accountability when they can understand the gospel and choose for themselves to accept it or reject it, that God will extend mercy to those children and that they will be in heaven. And then they won't have to, it's not like they're going to be stuck in like a baby body for all of eternity, you know. That wouldn't be great. No, they're going to receive a new body, a perfect body. You know, some people believe that this also applies to the mentally handicapped, the people, you know, people who don't have the capacity to make that choice to accept or reject the gospel or to follow Jesus. Another verse, you know, that comes here is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. It's an interesting verse, which seems to indicate that, that if a child's parents are believers, then they are covered by their parents' faith until they reach that age of personal accountability, where they will have to choose for themselves to follow Jesus or not. But I can relate so much to David here, you know, wanting to do everything he could to pray and fast for his sick child, but yet he was ready to fully submit himself to God's sovereign will, whatever it may be. And he would bow down afterwards and worship and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he'll find hope in the promise of heaven and that one day he'll be reunited with his son. You see, in the Lord, that is the glorious hope that we have. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Paul the Apostle, he says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And I don't even know which one is more desirable, to live for Christ or to die and go to be with him. He says, I'm kind of torn. You know, heaven sure does seem a lot better, but I guess I should stick around for the sake of all you guys. You know, death is a thief. That's what the Bible tells us. Death is a thief. It's not meant to be that way. But Jesus Christ overcame death. And if your hope is in him, if your trust is in him, then you don't have to be afraid of death. Because for the Christian, death from this life is passage into a greater, richer, truer life that doesn't end. I'm going to finish with just these last two verses, 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. By the way, this is the first time that she's referred to as David's wife and not Uriah's wife. And he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called him Jedidiah because of the Lord. You know what Jedidiah means? It means beloved of the Lord. You know, here's what Augustine had to say about this chapter. Augustine said this, David's fall should put those who have not fallen on their guard, and it should save from despair those who have fallen. Even though David and Bathsheba's relationship began in sin, God didn't hold a grudge against them. He didn't say, you guys are cut off now from any blessing or any fruitfulness. No, now that David is repentant, now that he's turned back to the Lord, not only has God forgiven him, not only has God restored him back to a right relationship with him, but now God is even going to redeem this messed up situation. And this son, Solomon, 
This is the son who God will call to be the next king of Israel. This is the son who was born out of this relationship that began in sin. But God is going to call this son to be the one through whom Jesus will come into the world, the Redeemer. Do you see it? Out of all of David's sons, and he had a bunch, God chose this one. Why? Why? Why out of all of them this one? To demonstrate that God forgives, God restores, God redeems those who repent and turn to him. Amen? Amen. To demonstrate that he's the God of second chances, that he's a redeemer, that he takes messed up situations and redeems them for his glory, to show off the glory of his grace. He's the God who exchanges beauty for ashes and the oil of gladness for mourning. You know what that means for you today? It means that there's hope. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, there's hope, even for you. And if you will come to the Lord and give yourself wholly to him, he will turn that dark night into a bright morning. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we just rejoice in it this morning, Lord. We say, Lord, like David, we want to have that contrite heart. Lord, it says, I have sinned against the Lord, but thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has overcome death, that we have the hope of heaven. Lord, we have all these things in you. And now as we sing this song, we sing it rejoicing in the hope of the gospel. And we take that hope of the gospel with us as we go out from here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.